The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. saw perhaps from your bulletin that I'm not departing today on a long study of a particular Bible book as we're at a transition place, but I propose rather to give consideration to the fact that next Sunday is the day that we call Reformation Sunday, and we always try to put some emphasis on that and how the great event of the Reformation affected us and our stance in Christian faith. And instead of just saying something once on that Sunday, I actually backed up and thought there was something I could say that would take six Sundays. Might as well take six instead of one. But uh, you can see in the bulletin that I outlined for you a short series there on the question of what is the Reformed faith or what is a Reformed church? What does it mean that the Reformation has really influenced us and still shapes the way we understand God's Word. In order to come at that this Sunday, I'm looking at a text at the end of Romans chapter 11. And it's somewhat important that you have some idea, and many of you do know the book of Romans, and you know it's one of the great monumental doctrinal books of the New Testament. It's a book that plunges people into despair in the early chapters because it tells us how sinful we are and how hopeless we are in our sin. But then it breaks in in chapter 3 to tell us that God has brought a way of salvation through Christ that is apart from obeying laws, that is by faith, that is all God's doing. And then Romans proceeds to unfold that and all the, the various uh, layers of, of meaning of a salvation coming through Christ. And it's just a marvelous, monumental book. And you have to have in your mind that Paul has said all that by the time he comes to the end of chapter 11. And he's looking back, I think, over the landscape of what he has said and things that amaze him when he gives this wonderful doxology that is our text today. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As I've said, I hope to take several weeks and specifically help you to see what we mean if you don't already know something about it when we say that we are a Reformed church, an adjective that describes us. It doesn't mean we have odd or weird beliefs that other Christians do not share, 
but it does describe some particular things that we think are important as they arise from the Bible and put it, of course, to the test of whether you see these things in the Bible or not. You can be a Christian and not be a Protestant. You can be a Protestant and not be Reformed. We certainly affirm the idea that we have fellowship with many Christians who do not share that label with us in particular. It is not a barrier of fellowship, but it is an understanding that arises from various things that God's Word has to teach us. In some places where people value Reformed faith, it's something you hear about all the time. They will, in almost every sermon, remind you, well, we're Reformed, so we see it this way or do it this way. I think if you know our congregation or you know my ministry, you know that while it is something quite important to us, it's not a label that we're always trumpeting. It's simply part of what we are. I would compare it to the way I might introduce myself to someone. Given my particular ethnic ancestry, I'm mostly of English heritage, a good piece of Irish in there, and a small piece of German. But I don't go around and introduce myself and say, hello, I'm Michael, the English-Irish-German human being. That would be a little silly. And that's similar sometimes with the way people would use the adjective or the description of being reformed. It's not so important that we are reformed as that we are biblical. Many of us simply think the reformed faith is nothing but biblical Christianity. You need to put that to the test and see if that is right. You know, of course, that this is what many people might call Calvinism. We don't throw that label around a lot just because we don't think it's a terribly helpful label. It tends to make people think, oh, John Calvin invented your beliefs. No, not at all. He was one of the great writers, one of the great theologians who propagated and and, uh, spun out the implications of these things in Scripture. But it certainly is not something that a man, a single man, invented. We're talking about the theology of the Word of God. And I think it will only become more clear to those who don't know what I'm talking about as I get into it. But today I would put before you the ultimate characteristic of what we call the Reformed faith or what a Reformed church is characterized by. And that is that we are a church that emphasizes the divine sovereignty, majesty, and glory of God above all things. We look at the Scripture, we look at a book like Romans, and we see the exaltation of God on a grand scale. And at the same time, the portrait of mankind, man and woman, painted in our sin and in our helplessness, and a great gulf exists between the the grandeur of God on one hand and the lowliness and helplessness and deadness in sin of human beings. We're not just, you know, a little space away from God. There's a great grand canyon of distance that could not be spanned by anything that we can do. And the Reformed view has always been to see God in Scripture as an immense and awesome being, a God beyond all comparison, a God who in his sheer 
otherness surpasses thought and understanding of human beings. God himself says this. Isaiah 57, 15. The Lord calls himself the high, lofty one who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. Also in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, the Lord issues a kind of challenge and says, to whom will you liken me? Who is my equal? You see, this is what sovereignty is about. It's saying God is so absolute, so high, no one is near him. No one can limit him. No one can even understand him unless he would communicate understanding about himself. In the book of Daniel, that prophet writes, Daniel 4.35, he says, he, meaning God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? You see, many can question us and our, our, our manager at work, the owner of the company, uh, our, even our spouse might say to us sometimes, what in the world have you done? I'm questioning you. But the Scripture says no one can come to God and accuse Him and say, what have you done there? How dare you do that? No one can say that to God. Well, I had first today, in a very brief first point, make a suggestion to you about today's declining belief in a truly sovereign God. Now, if you would approach almost any Christian that had any biblical literacy at all, that knew what the Bible said, and ask them whether they wore the label Reformed or not, if you said, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Most knowledgeable Christians are going to say, why, yes, of course I believe in that. But then if you would talk to them for a while and try to understand how they understand that or what that means, In many cases, you would find people quickly beginning to put limits on God's sovereignty. They would say, well, sure, God is sovereign, but after all, human beings are free, we have free will, and we get to do what we want to do, and so on. And right away, they would start drawing limits, putting God in a smaller and smaller cage, and saying, well, God can do what men let him do, is what some people are about to say. Those who are Reformed believers certainly acknowledge that mankind has a measure of free will. We do not deny free will. This is a mysterious and deep and difficult subject I'm not going to try to unravel today, but human beings are free to an extent. But we do not have unlimited free will, as many people would seem to think we do. The Scripture says nobody seeks after God. We don't even have the ability to go and try to find God because we're so lost and so dead in our sins. We have free will to make decisions on this earth of a lot of human relationships and and everyday things and what we will buy and where we will live and all those kinds of things, but we do not have ultimate free will. Our will does not hem God in. And what Reformed faith says, if there's a contest, if there's an arm wrestling contest between human will and God's will, God's will prevails every single time because he reigns supreme. 
And if you're not willing to admit that, then you're beginning to trivialize God. I don't know why it came into my mind this week, a picture, I saw a very vivid picture, and I think it was a National Geographic years ago of uh, a, a tribe, a primitive tribe that it, have headhunters. And you've all seen at some time or other a picture of a shrunken head, a human head. Well, that makes me think of what some people do to God. They shrink their God down. And they end up with an ugly, grotesque being who is not the God of the Bible. He's not the, the creator. He's not the all-sovereign redeemer. They have a shallow, little, pygmy-type God designed to their own dimensions. No wonder worship becomes superficial. If we do not have a grand God who is worthy of us praising and literally shouting out his praise, no wonder prayer has so little attention from anyone because quite often people are just expressing wishful thinking instead of praying to an almighty sovereign. A.W. Tozer was a minister who lived in the 20th century, mid-20th century or so. He wrote many things about the great God whom he worshipped. Tozer said, and this is, again, uh, more than 50 years ago, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for him a deity that is utterly unworthy of worship. We gave up the grandeur of God little by little, and the surrender of his utter and sublime majesty has been the cause of a hundred other ills for the people who call themselves Christians. We had better be sure we are worshiping the true God in all the dimensions in which Scripture presents him. That's what we're saying. Reformed faith says, I will not compromise, I will not reduce, I will not dilute, I will not put in a cage the picture of God that the Scripture presents. I will come to the undiluted picture of God as the Scripture presents him. Well, secondly then, I want to state this to you today as a thesis. No people ever rise any higher than their concept of God allows. Now, we look at this majestic statement about God in Romans 11. I think that Paul, by the time he got here, and by the way, of course, there was more of the book to follow, but that was mostly practical discussions about relationships with folks and things. But the doctrinal meat of the book is really completed by Romans 11. And I think Paul was an author of this book, a human author by God's Holy Spirit, who was astonished at what he had written. You know, I, I will sometimes look back at something I've written or something published, or uh, someone actually sent me an excerpt of a book I had published here not long ago, and, and they were asking me a question about it, and I thought, did I write that? And I had to, to look, yes, I guess I did say that. I don't remember everything I've written. And here's Paul. God used him to present this amazing book, and I think Paul was kind of astonished at what had come out of his own pen. It was so wonderful, so astounding. And it's almost like he's been climbing up the slope of Mount Everest, doctrinally speaking, through these 11 chapters. And now he's at the peak, looking back at, at what has been written here. And the picture of God and the picture of God's salvation that he beholds 
amazes him. He's, his breath is taken away. And that's when he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable, unknowable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? My wife and I have been married a few years. And uh, we know each other pretty well. We will often not be talking about a subject that might have been a subject of discussion weeks earlier, and almost within minutes, we will each be ready to raise that subject with the other, as if there was something going on between those minds. And I, I have figured, I, I did a calculation, unscientifically, of course, that I can know about 80% of the time what, what is in my wife's mind. I reserve the 20% because she's a woman. And there's this iron door barred woman inside. You don't know what's there. And you have to deal with that. But they tell us that we men are very simple and transparent and everything we're thinking is right out there and they've got it figured out. So we'll say she knows what I'm thinking 98% of the time. But neither of us without God telling us, communicating to us, knows what God is thinking even one-tenth of one percent of the time. Paul is saying the mind of God is so great, so vast, so tremendous. I could not begin to think his thoughts unless he would begin to communicate them to me. Isaiah 55 has the Lord say, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. The mind of God is opaque, if you will, unless he opens the windows and begins to communicate, which, of course, he does in his word, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. What mind except the mind of God could have planned and executed the wonderful salvation that 11 chapters of Romans sets out by? Paul is stunned. All he can do is adore this God. If a modern hymn would be adapted for Paul's use on this occasion, I think perhaps he would take Joseph Addison's words in a hymn that say, When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported by that view, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. It's as if I'm taken out of my body by something that is so fantastic. Reformed faith is that which understands that people never rise to any kind of high level socially, philosophically, religiously, or any other way. They don't rise any higher than the concept of God that they have in their mind. And so why not at least have the concept that is at least as high as that which the Bible presents rather than a reduced version. See, when we look around today at social ills going on, we see our politics frozen in jousting and infighting, and we say, why can't it work? We have a beautiful constitution. We have a system. Why does it break down like this? We see terrorism encroaching on us. We see the unborn continuing to be killed. We see the consequences of sexual license in our society. And we say, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world? 
Well, what's wrong with the world is we have a loss of awareness that there is anyone higher and more exalted in the universe than ourselves. And so we think, why we can figure everything out that has to be figured out, but we're not figuring it out without the standard of a creator and a king who is above us and who gives us the measurement for what is worthy, what is moral, what is good, what is just. We lose our ability to measure anything meaningful at all without the grand God to provide the measuring stick for us. You see, what what comes to your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. Some of you have a concept of God, you know, this stern judge who's ready to whack you every time you break the rules or something like that. Others of you have a, a, maybe a wishy-washy, soft idea of God who's just love, love, love. How about the biblical God for a change? Try Him out, and you will find many surprises about what He thinks and what He says. You will find a reaction to him that the Old Testament calls the fear of God. And that does not mean terror. It means healthy, deep respect. For one is so high above who you are. You see, what I'm calling reformed faith is that which is ready to behold God for what he is and not hem him in, not dilute the picture, not alter the picture to suit our, our preferences. The essence of idolatry is to make small or somehow limit the limitless and grand God. Thirdly, I would explore the, the meat of this text, this short text for a few minutes. In Romans eleven thirty three to 36, And have you seen that this grand God is said by Paul to be the source and the means and the goal of all things that exist? Look at this doxology here. He says, speaking of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Each of those could could be a long discourse, but just a minute on each. From him is Paul's way of seeing God as the source of all things, the source of creation itself. Paul was thinking back to Genesis and thinking why there was a time when God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, existed as a fellowship, but they existed alone. No stars or planets no solar system, no earth. You know, the, the subject of the origins of things continues to fascinate mankind. And we have scientists pursuing their uh, ideas of this and their theories of this, and they're very determined, many of them anyway, not all scientists, but many scientists are quite determined that their pursuit of origins will have nothing to do with what the Bible says. Other scientists say, no, the the Scripture has to be regarded as well. But, you know, from from a young age, as I've been interested in these things and studied it both in science classes and as a theologian, there's been one thing that remains fundamental for me is the question, when people talk about the Big Bang as the alternative to God's creation, I've always wanted to say, what do you think existed 
five seconds before the Big Bang? That's a very, very simple question. I don't think there is a nuclear physicist on Earth who can answer it. What existed five seconds before the so-called Big Bang? You say, I don't know. Maybe something, maybe nothing. There are those that say nothing. Well, if it was nothing, then how did we get from nothing to something? Genesis actually answers that. It says in its first sentence, In the beginning, God created, breathed out of his mouth, and said, let there be everything. Oh, you say, now you're talking religion. You're asking me to have faith. No, my friend, you, Mr. Scientist, who say there was nothing before the Big Bang, require a kind of faith I am not capable of. The faith to believe in the beginning God is taking God at his own word, when otherwise there's no answer. Similarly, this text tells us that all things exist not only from him, but through him. God, I think this is saying, is the operative means by which everything continues to exist and is supported. Now, there's a popular belief. It's been around for a long time. It's called deism. The belief that, yes, there's a higher power that got things started, but that power it wasn't a personal power, and it sort of stepped back somehow and let natural laws and scientific laws take over and run things. Well, I see that Hebrews 1.3 says the Lord upholds all things by the word of his power. I see that Colossians 1.17 teaches that Christ was before all things, and in him all things hold together. I see that Acts 17.28 tells us, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Day by day, season by season, week by week, our God is a God who superintends, who cares for, who knows what's happening to us and is intimately involved in the circumstances of our lives. That's why we can pray. That's why we turn to the one who we think actually sees our circumstances. He sees a sparrow fall. Does he not see you? And then further, this text says all things have a goal, and that is moving towards God. Paul said here that all things are unto him, meaning God is the ultimate end, the goal towards which everything is moving. It's not a chaotic universe in which everything is just colliding and bouncing off in a random way. God is working towards a pattern, towards an end. If we just take the subject of salvation, people might ask, well, what goal is being worked towards in salvation? Well, of course, God's saving me, forgiving my sins. Well, why did he do that? Well, he must have thought I was valuable. He must have thought I was worth saving. Well, that's a man-centered way to answer it. But here's the biblical way. Here's the Reformed answer to that, if you will. It's not something other than the Bible. The biblical answer says it doesn't really center upon you. Romans 9.23, what if he saved us, Paul wrote, in order to make the riches of his own glory known to the objects of his mercy? In other words, not just to save you, but to glorify himself. Ephesians 1.5, 
says, In love God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accord with his pleasure and his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. Not just because you were worth saving, but because he would be glorified when he did this. And there's more times right there in Ephesians 1 which say that God's saving activity is done for the praise of his glory. God himself, you see, and his glory is the ultimate end of things. When we ask where did everything come from, the answer is from God. If we ask how are things still moving along and cared for, we say through God. If we ask where is everything headed in the final analysis, the answer is to God. And that's why Reformed thinkers have said over the years and the slogan that came out of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. The grand slogan for a grand God. I dare say that many of our children here would know if I sat down with them, I don't know at what age they might learn this, but they would be able to tell me who the astronomer Nikolai Copernicus was. You try to understand what the world was like before Copernicus. Everybody thought the planet Earth, and I suppose naturally so in a pre-scientific age, that planet Earth was the center of everything, right? The sun goes around the Earth. All the planets go around the Earth. Well, along came this Polish man, a very wise individual, who somehow, I don't know how he figured this out, that guess what? Everything doesn't go around the Earth. The moon does, but that's it. The sun doesn't. The planets do not. The earth is not the center. And here's this radical notion, which today we know is correct. The earth is not the center. Well, I like to say to people that what we call Reformed faith is a kind of Copernican revolution for some people in their whole notion of God and salvation. You are not the center of everything. God is. And it really changes your whole viewpoint when you put him at the center and suddenly you realize why I am a very small, I'm an important cog. He, he set his heart on me. He cares for me. He loves me. But I'm not the center of the universe. You know from hearing this from me in the past that one of my great heroes in American history is Teddy Roosevelt. wish we could reinvent him and elect him president, but I don't think that's going to happen. But a story is told, by the way, Roosevelt was raised in the Dutch Reformed Church, and he would have heard Reformed teaching in his childhood. He had a basic Christian faith. One time, a scientist named William Beebe was visiting Roosevelt at his home, Roosevelt's home, Sagramore Hill in Long Island. And uh, Teddy liked to entertain, and he had this man was a friend, and they had dinner, and they discussed the great problems of the world, and Night came, and Beebe was planning to spend the night, stay there. And the president said, Let, Beebe, let's go for a walk. And so they went out and walked to the estate, Sagamore Hill, beautiful place, I guess. I've not been able to visit it. But Teddy, being a bit of a natural scientist himself, started pointing at the sky. The president of the United States, the most powerful man in the Western Hemisphere, said, Look up there, Beebe, there's the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It's larger than the Milky Way and it contains a hundred billion stars. 
Look over here, look as far as you can see, and, and your eye can't take in a hundred million galaxies that are surrounding us, that are barely visible to us. Isn't it wonderful? And then the President of the United States said, All right, friend, now I think you and I know that we're small enough. Let's go into bed. Have you learned how small you are before a great and majestic and holy God? Does your consideration of Him and of His Son, Jesus Christ, have in it any depth and immensity of wonderment and amazement that leaves you awestruck and ready to worship like Paul did here in Romans 11? You see, correct God-exalting theology sponsors great worship. Theology of the kind that Romans teach leads to doxology, praise of the all-gracious, all-merciful Father God. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, experienced his own Copernican revolution of faith. Here's what he wrote about it. He said, When I first received the truths of divine sovereignty into my soul, they were burned into me as with a hot iron, and I can recall now how I felt all of a sudden that I had grown from being a mere baby into a man. And I now held the clue which led me towards all the wonders of the many truths of God. Folks, we're going to say more about this subject, but the core truth of Reformed faith is summarized in these words. From Him, through Him, unto Him are all things. To God be the glory forever and forever. Amen. Our Father, we need to constantly recapture a grand view of You. We confess that we have dallied with our generation as they have reduced you down to a size that human logic can, can accept. They put you in all kinds of cages and said, here's what my reason says God can be. Lord God, knock us down with a new understanding of yourself. Not in special visions, but as we see you in your word, in your power, in your might, in your determination to save out of the deadness of humankind those who would come to faith in Jesus. Teach us again and again how to worship you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.